Hi, this is Unsuitable with Mary B. Saferit, the podcast where I interview single Christians about their lives and faith. Welcome to the season two finale. Huge thanks for being here for the wrap-up episode. Man, I loved these interviews on relationships and community, which were specifically episodes 2.6 through 2.9. Every single one of these guests brought their A-game, so if you haven't had a chance to listen yet, go back now and check them out. For those of you who are all caught up, let me walk you through what you're about to hear. We're going to start off with a story of an experience in which I felt unsuitable in community. I'm then going to walk you through some of the deeper implications of what I experienced while tying in insights from the four interviews in this series. We're going to talk about this idea of privilege that kept coming up and how it affects our relationships and a story of how my guy Jesus interacted with a woman who was perceived as all sorts of unsuitable. At the very end, I'll share how you can get my very free guide, How to Make Friends Without Hating Everything. When I was 18, I was invited to be a debutante. The debutante tradition started as a coming-of-age ritual for young women of a certain social class. These women are presented in white dresses in front of other families and members of the same social class. Normally, I would have said no without a second thought. The society scene isn't really my thing. But I had just gone through a rough breakup and was feeling sorry for myself. So the idea that somebody thought I was important was highly enticing. I said yes. My first test of high society womanliness came in the form of responding to the invitation. I had to write my response in pen, in cursive, on our family crest notepaper. My mom had sent two pieces as well as a couple of photocopies to practice on. I practiced several times, but my handwriting has never been neat or prim. I panicked, and I thought this was the most unreasonably difficult task I could have been asked to do. Slaying hay to a bunch of hungry cows? No problem, I got that on lock. Write a fancy response to fancy people on fancy paper? Who could possibly respond to such an impossible request? After a solid 45-minute anxiety spiral, I managed to write out the words and send the letter off to the appropriate recipient. I was in. There was something deeply satisfying about feeling in, feeling chosen from all the girls my age in the state to walk across the stage as I said my full name. Mary Brantley Seyfried, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Leonard Yearby Seyfried Jr. I was somebody. The weekend arrived. I had the required white dress. It was a strapless taffeta wedding gown with a sweetheart neckline, fitted bodice, long train, and some crystal detailing. We had to buy these full-length white kid leather gloves that extended midway up my bicep. The gloves that came, even though I had been measured in the store, were a solid half size too small, and leather doesn't exactly stretch. So once my mom and I wrestled my arms into the gloves, They weren't coming off, and I also couldn't bend my arms. I had gotten real grown-up girl makeup lessons from Sephora. Someone did my hair, and my sister took fancy pictures. I looked the part, and yet there was a pervasive, nagging feeling that underneath the wrapper, I wasn't fooling anyone. On the inside, I was the weird, slightly feral farm child I had always been. I felt a bit out of place that whole weekend. Many people were there in groups, having been friends since birth, 
My family was solidly upper middle class, but some of these chicks were descended from Vanderbilts and Rockefellers. I had the manners and the training to fake it pretty well in that crowd, but I felt seriously out of my league. Even as I enjoyed the very best that North Carolina society had to offer, even as I sat on the stage that meant I was somebody, I felt unsuitable. Getting invited didn't fix my unease and insecurity. I had all the privilege that meant I was the perceived ideal in that situation. White, wealthy, respectable, educated, from a good family. These gave me a built-in advantage in life and gave me the luxury to choose whether or not I want to be part of all that those privileges entail. In all the ways that seemed to count, I was somebody. So why didn't I feel suitable? My feelings of unsuitability tend to flare up in that type of environment because I don't feel that I live up to this ideal of the socially graceful Southern woman. I felt the tension of looking the part, being able to act the part to a certain extent, even wanting to be held up as that ideal, and also knowing I didn't fully fit. We carry a certain amount of privilege around with us, and this can either be something that gets us in the door or labels us as different. It also colors the assumptions we carry into our relationships and communities. In this series, Liz talked about how growing up in a broken family and around an addict has affected her relationships. This might not sound like a privilege issue, but growing up in a highly dysfunctional home means that building healthy relationships takes more work because your understanding of normal human behavior is skewed. Rob talked about being excluded from a particular church group, and being a minority ethnicity in that church. Christina described the effect that growing up with cerebral palsy had on some of her relationships and communities. And Sean talked about living in a predominantly white community and attending predominantly white schools. I didn't actually plan privilege or lack thereof to be such a consistent theme, but I'm glad it was. Even though I have felt unsuitable in many situations, there are also many obstacles and experiences I don't face on a daily basis. In these four interviews, I was floored by how honest each of these guests was about their struggles with themselves and the context in which they found themselves. I bring the assumptions of a white, straight, able-bodied, monetarily privileged woman into my conversations and my relationships. At the time of being a debutante, I was blind to what this meant and how it affected how I saw the world around me. I didn't notice that the overwhelming majority of people in the room looked like me. There may have been differences in disposition and life choices, but most of these women who were labeled as the future leaders of our respective communities were also white, able-bodied, and monetarily privileged. Looking back on being a debutante and the way I saw the world at the time, I was oblivious to all I was buying into by participating. I was buying into a system of exclusion one intentionally designed to keep white, wealthy people in power. I was buying into a narrative that said I was more important than other women in my state simply because of the family I was born into, which is something I had no control over. I bought into a history that has consistently worked to make my life easier than my brothers and sisters of color. I thought I was saying yes to a couple of parties and feeling like I was somebody. In reality, I was also saying yes to a deeply entrenched and carefully crafted story that told me I deserved the privilege I had been born into, and that that privilege in and of itself made me somebody. It has taken years of reading 
and listening to the experiences of people who have lived different lives, for me to begin to realize that my assumptions about how the world works are not true for the majority of people. Only relatively recently have I started to understand that many of the things I participated in as a white Southern woman were laden with a history and a narrative that I didn't understand. I have always existed in a position of privilege on many fronts, and so the implications and results of that history do not adversely affect my everyday life, and yet they're real. Listening to the stories of people who don't have the same privilege we do not only enhances our understanding of the world around us and the people we interact with, but also our understanding of God. I mean, look at how Jesus interacted with individuals and with different groups. How did he speak to those in power? How did he speak to the oppressed and overlooked? Who did he spend his time with? There's so much nuance to each of Jesus's interactions, and I find that to be especially revolutionary and challenging. When he sees a person, he doesn't just see the exterior, paralyzed, Samaritan, religious leader, and act based on that label. He sees the person holistically. This includes, but is not limited to, one part of that person's existence. He doesn't, for example, look at a religious leader and assume that because they are a religious leader, they're all that in a bag of chips. He doesn't see a paralyzed person as their illness or condition, but as someone with agency and dignity. So he talks to that person and tells them to get up, take up their mat, and walk. There's a great story in the Bible about Jesus interacting with someone who was seen as all sorts of unsuitable. Jesus is in an area of ancient Israel called Samaria, which is no place any respectable Jewish person should ever be. It's the hottest part of the day, and Jesus sits down at a well. His friends are off getting food when a woman comes up. Jesus asks her to give him a drink. She responds, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? At this time, the Jewish people considered Samaritans unclean. So if they shared a cup with a Samaritan, it would make them unclean as well, which was no bueno. It is shocking that Jesus, as a Jewish man, would speak to this woman, and doubly shocking that he would ask for water from her, sharing her cup. In this interaction, we learn that the woman has had five husbands, and the man she is living with is not her husband. So, on top of her being part of a discriminated against people group, this woman was a social outcast within her own community. She would have been seen as all sorts of unsuitable. But Jesus talks to her. They have an extended conversation about theology, this woman's life, living water, and the well. Jesus takes this woman seriously. And the thing is, according to the story, he knew about her social baggage before he even started talking to her. Jesus asks her to bring her husband to the well. When the woman says she's not married, Jesus says that she is right, and then tells her about her entire romantic history. After this interaction, the woman goes to her neighbors and tells them about Jesus. She says, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? A few verses later, the storyteller writes, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. 
I started this podcast to challenge listeners and myself to take a second look at our perspectives and the ideas that shape how we see ourselves and the world around us, the people we overlook, the people we define as unsuitable, the ones who we think have nothing to offer, and also the experiences we have had in which we felt unsuitable. The picture Christ paints for the church is a deeply embodied care and consideration for all of creation, a holistic restoration that leaves no corner of our lives, our communities, and our world untouched. I want this podcast to challenge us all to listen to each other, perhaps most particularly to the person we think God could never speak or work through. We are not just individuals existing in one-to-one relationships with God and our immediate surroundings. In fact, the word relationship is incredibly broad. We have a relationship with self, with God, with family, friends, romantic partners, culture, country, history, and the planet on which we live. We are certainly individuals living individual lives, but we are also a part of a bigger whole, whether we are conscious of it or not. All of these relationships play into and affect each other, our habits, and our sense of self. So the question we must ask ourselves on all levels of relationships is this. How do we define unsuitable? Are we even aware of our definition? Maybe it's people of a certain political party, a certain sexual orientation, a particular race or ethnicity, or a certain marital status. Maybe it's ourselves. Maybe we are our own definition of unsuitable. The work of participating in the restoration of our world, our communities, and our relationships starts small. It starts in the everyday decisions we are making that are often more out of habit than conscious choice. There is a need for big action, for policy change and activism, but even those things are built by everyday obedience. I'm not forgoing the possibility of the dramatically miraculous, but just because something takes work does not make it any less miraculous. A heart that slowly unlearns the habits of hate two people who work to find common ground in a broken relationship, a life-saving law years in the making. Incremental growth is just as astonishing as sudden change. Much of it begins with the daily choice to push out into the unfamiliar and uncomfortable. The choice to stand firm, even when you can't tell if what you're doing is making any difference. We can have all of the big grand ideas we want about unsuitability, privilege, and ideals, but they mean little if we can't embody them in our actual lives. I can sit here and think about the ideal way I could have handled myself as a debutante, but it doesn't mean that when caught off guard with a similar choice in the future, I will choose differently. I heard recently in a video by Alan Hirsch that we can't think ourselves into a new way of acting. We act ourselves into a new way of thinking. But how and where do we start? It starts with us. Prayer and reflection, listening and absorbing, reading and asking hard questions of myself. But my perspective is limited and not always accurate. There are habits so deeply ingrained, so reflexive, that I am incapable of seeing them without help. Of course, our deepest transformation comes from God, but we also need other humans to help us see what we cannot on our own. I'm thankful for the friends who share their lives and stories with me. They've expanded my understanding of the human experience and of God. 
I loved what Sean shared in episode 2.9 about how his diverse group of friends has stood with him through the highs and lows of his life and how they have had the courage and humility to teach each other through their vastly different experiences. Our closest relationships shape who we are and how we see the world, but how intentionally are we forming these relationships? In response to this question, I've created a guide called How to Make Friends Without Hating Everything. It includes reflection questions that will help you think more deeply about past, present, and future relationships. I encourage you to pray and journal through those if you are of a praying and journaling disposition. Consider also sharing your thoughts with a trusted friend. You're also going to get an extra credit reading list with some of my favorite books and resources on relationships, community, and privilege. There are five discussion questions, so you can grab a couple friends and cultivate deeper relationships with each other by having a discussion. And as a bonus, I added a page that has a list of next level conversation starters and some sweet hangout ideas. If, like me, your brain has a tendency to go blank around new people, how do you get this guide? It's super easy. All you have to do is go to my website and sign up for my fortnightly email newsletter. You'll get a welcome email that has all the deets on how to download the guide. By signing up, every other Wednesday, you'll get an email from me. It'll include a brief story, a conversation starter to help you deepen new friendships, and updates on my blog, podcasts, and other projects. Head to my website, marybesafer.com, and enter your info into the box that pops up. Or click on Join the Conversation. I'd love to hear from you. If you have thoughts or feedback, there are a couple ways you can communicate those. One, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Two, follow me on Instagram at marybee.saferit. Three, head to my website, marybesaferit.com and click contact me. That is all for season two. I'm already planning and scheming for season three. So check out my social media for updates as that continues to develop. Theme music is by Chad Rollinson and sound editing is by Andrew Kim. Unsuitable with Mary B. Saferit and all content therein is the intellectual property of Mary B. Saferit LLC and may not be used without permission.